was, wait, I'm doing hello? I don't know why I said we were good, but I didn't know that. <laughs> Hello friends, welcome to Mr. Rewatch, your Mr. Robot recap show, brought to you by a stand-up comedian and a depressive hacker. I'm Devlin. And I'm Aaron. So what's new with you? Well, uh, I'm sitting in front of a table. Uh, I've, I'm addicted to those monthly subscription services. I think that I remember that you've got one for stationery and it's like a new one you've been talking about. Well, I was like, and I get socks and underwear. I have a sock one going on right now too. Do you like it? Yeah, it's great. It was a gift for my sister, oh, my nice. other sister. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you don't give me stuff like monthly subscription sucks. Still waiting for the birthday gift. Oh, yeah. We'll get it out of the trunk of my car after the <laughs> recording. But one of the ones I get is a hot sauce of the month club. So that's where you got all these. Yeah, so um, we're going to put those to good use. The Mr. Rewatch team is turning our minds to how we can um, turn everything we do into recordable content. By my counts, there are nine different hot sauces in front of us. It's going to be quite a buffet. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, continuing with our theme of highlighting music from the show, I think there's like a standout track in this one that you want to highlight for listeners? Yeah, but I think we all know what it is. I'm not even going to say it. Here you go. Listen to your So this episode starts with Elliot. It's a really long cold open, actually. Uh, he's talking about trying to undo the damage that he's done with the five nine hack, and undo happens to be the name of this episode. So I, I was wondering, like, uh, is there anything that you wanted to undo in that way? Probably like fifty to seventy five percent of my life to this point, actually. <laughs> Uh, the, the way that he talks about it, he reminded me of an incident at a former workplace where somebody meant to post a picture to, um, like something that was relevant to their work, but accidentally posted one of someone's penis that was painted like an elephant trunk. And oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. They were definitely very embarrassed by that. I'm sure they wish they could undo it. Did they change their name and leave the country <laughs> or just... Just let the ground swallow them whole. Afterwards. They hung around for a couple of years, but they did like get a name that was based on that incident. Man, we all have things I bet we wish we could <laughs> undo. Yeah, so Elliot here, he's talking about selling out and growing up. Maybe that's another thing that we have a lot to talk about, but not to get off on a tangent again. Well, so just to establish it, so people are still uh, burning trash in the streets. Um, so that's kind of the visual as Elliot is on his way to his brand new job that he positions to the viewer as growing up not selling out at e-corp yeah i guess he's trying to say now that um he has a better shot of influencing e-corp from the inside than trying to take it down yeah so he is trying to uh use the master's tool to dismantle the master's house to badly paraphrase uh audra lord <laughs> i i understood that reference yeah see um, I love the way, so this is not the first time Elliot has tried this, right? In each season, he has a point where he tries to reinvent his life and create some kind of stable, straight job, legitimate routine. Like in the first season, it's where, you know, Gideon's like, is he drinking a Starbucks? 
hey, you're right. And it always kind of happens in the same part of the storyline, huh? Like the same episode in the season. Does I think so. I think that's the point where he thinks, okay, I'm lost and I screwed up and I should try to redirect. So he gets himself imprisoned uh, in the second season. And in this season, he decides E-Corp is a necessary evil and adopts more of a reform philosophy uh, to capitalism and moves in there. And I do love the way it's shot. Apparently those emoji masks were very hot and unpleasant to wear. Oh, I can imagine. It did look really cool, though. And I'm personally like a big fan of emoji. I know they get some flack, but I'm really starting to use those a lot. Okay, here's a question for you. Which emoji would you be? The ghost. The ghost? The ghost is the one that I have stuck over the webcam on my laptop. I love that. <laughs> Very fitting. Um, Elliot explains he can't decrypt the data. So remember, I thought that was going to be the angle they used and why, because you had pointed out that's not efficient. That wasn't oh. a good way to go about it. Yeah, you're right. That kind of planted like the possibility that the decryption key was lying around somewhere. Uh, apparently it ain't. So hey. he starts t on a different approach. You know, I, I, this just reminded me of something, but there was actually um, a big incident that happened in the security community over the last couple of weeks, as in like mid-October, if you're listening to this at another time, where um, a device that was being used to generate encryption keys was found to be flawed. So a lot of um, keys that were generated could be cracked. Like just if you had the public key, you'd be able to derive the private key. So retroactively, a bunch of things that were secure were broken now. So that makes me think that maybe that some genius Alan Turing-level cryptographer might be able to like break the algorithm on the encryption that they're using. Oh, interesting. Here we see Elliot. This is familiar to probably some of our viewers. We see the difficulty in trying to change things within a corporate culture. So we see Elliot like repeatedly, because he's trying to shut down stage two, right, and make sure it can't be brought back to life. So we see the difficulty of him trying to make that change inside the company, even though he's playing by all the rules this time. Yeah, so stage two is the plan to blow up the recovery facility where all of these 71 different um, like remote facilities, I guess, I know what those are called, <laughs> they're all sending their documents to this one centralized area so they can be restored. And what Elliot's trying to do is to digitize all of them remotely so they don't have that one single point of failure. But he gets a bunch of pushback from all of his managers who don't have, um, like, who don't understand the urgency of the situation. Um, in every case, though, Elliot is able to kind of hack them, find out something, take them out of the picture, and then move up in the chain. And this is interesting because this really goes back to more of a, like, Ron's Coffee-style approach where he starts taking out individual offenders one at a time. I was surprised that he was still doing that by reporting them to the FBI, considering that they are not really on the best of terms right now. I don't know if I'm getting ahead of myself, but you remember um, as early as the first season, we were talking about how a bunch of the male characters in this show are really screwed up, and it's generally, like, the female characters who end up being... Well, at this point, I guess we've found out a lot more about the female characters than we did then. But they tend to be a lot more stable than the male ones. And if you notice, um, through all of these like managers that he has to go through in this chain of commands, all of the males uh, blow him off and then get arrested because of it. And the first female manager who he encounters is the one who like realizes the severity of the situation. I actually refer to this in my notes as the toxic masculinity episode. <laughs> is that one of the reasons why? That is one of the reasons why, because they're so happy with the status quo, and she's the only one to look at making change. And I think that's the first in a chain of events that makes me refer to this episode this way. But also, and I mean, they couldn't have known this would happen, but when the episode aired, 
I mean, this is in the wake of all the Harvey Weinstein and the hashtag Me Too campaign. And so I think people are just very alerted to like men's shittiness right now. <laughs> and so it really, again, in the way that this show either deliberately or accidentally plays into real world, real time events, kind of airs at the perfect time to be looking at this and s thinking about all of these characters like, hey, like, what is going on here? The show's always really timely with its social commentary. One thing I'll say, um, one of the uh, real-world parallels here is that one of the people Elliot sends away is for falsifying um, data about auto emissions. And that actually happened with Volkswagen in this past year, that their emission reports were found to be fake. I was just going to say, the uh, with the toxic masculinity, the guy who's like works beside Elliot everything he talks about is the women they work with that guy was such a shithead that might actually be like one of the most shithead characters in the show so far I know I just thought what a classic like if we wanted to create a caricature of tech bro douches and of course I mean most people in this industry and the world are not this way but he illustrates every bad example you've ever heard about a guy like that it's so gross so you know how in a previous episode we were talking about how milkshakes were going for $13 now and that was really expensive? It seems like that's just because of like inflation maybe or because the economy is going to shit. Because um, as the scene comes to a close, he buys an apple for someone for $5. And it made me think, like, how much do you think a banana costs? Now like $10? Yes, Lucille. <laughs> is that an, that's an arrested development yeah that was. yeah yeah <laughs> or in 30 rock where jack's like what could a bag of potatoes cost 90 dollars <laughs> um i wonder if here um elliot is looking for his own absolution because remember he dwells a lot on his feelings of responsibility about all of the collateral damage and all the things that have happened that he didn't intend and so i wonder if this is his way of trying to wipe his conscience clean he doesn't really do a very good job of that, though, because it seems like um, his crying fits have come back. They make a sort of direct reference to the scene in the pilot where he's crying next to his dresser. It seems like he's got that one like crying spot like we all got and where he just wants to go hang out sometimes. Yeah, into my crying pillow. Yeah, of course. Anyway, one conspicuous, my last point on this scene, one conspicuous absence here. We don't see Mr. Robot for any of at least, you know, the first 10, 12 minutes of this episode. Wait, are we taping? Sorry, cut that. <laughs> Fix it in post. Mr. Robot's absence is one of the things that Elliot talks about at his next visit with Krista. We find that uh, her landlord has not been paying the utilities or really maintaining her office, so now she's just working out of her home. And her home office is actually pretty rad, to be honest. I would hang out there a lot more often than her. Yeah, like it might be nicer than her actual office. Now all of her clients know where she lives. So that's, that's an interesting feature of that uh, profession. She wishes Elliot a happy birthday, which he had forgotten. And not only has he forgotten his own birthday, but I guess that also indicates that nobody has uh, even called him or sent him a text message. And I think that goes back to that overwhelming loneliness that he feels, where you know, even the people closest to him, like perhaps Darlene or Angela, haven't been in touch. So that's, that's pretty sad. So I guess there are actually kind of two main points that he goes over with Krista right now. And we can start by talking about how he and Darlene haven't been talking. They haven't been talking. And that's, I think, in large part, or at least what he shares with Krista, and he is being more forthcoming with her lately, is that he thinks that Darlene, because she was a part of his childhood, 
is the person who triggers Mr. Robot's appearances. Krista asks about the quality of that relationship with Mr. Robot right now, and Elliot says that it's different. And Krista asks what I think is a really interesting question, because she says, you miss him, don't you? Because remember, her approach to this has been more of an integration approach, right? Not that this... I mean, even if she's treating it like a case of dissociative identity disorder, she doesn't think the alter needs to be wiped out. She believes that they can peacefully exist together in some way if they recognize each other. So she always acknowledges the Mr. Robot part of him as very valid. And I think that she also notices that um, when she asks how Elliot's feeling, he kind of hesitates and takes a minute to say good. And she can tell right away that that's because he's not telling the truth. Elliot's never felt good. Good. I don't buy it. Who'd buy that? (laughs) Elliot says that he doesn't so much miss Mr. Robot as he misses being a part of something and something important. Because I think with 5-9 not turning out the way he'd intended, I mean, that's really his life's work to this point. And so he really misses feeling like he's part of a bigger purpose. He does here, I think, have a genuine moment of, I think, joyful recollection where he talks about a scene from his childhood where Darlene and Elliot built a snowman together. You'd said that you've never seen Elliot look happy before, and I think this is also one of the first moments where we see Krista smile, because normally she's in uh, fairly, fairly serious scenes, but it's nice to see some emotion out of her when Elliot's telling the story. Because I think they laugh pretty genuinely here, and why wouldn't you? Because they built a snowman named Kevin McAllister. I love that. I love that, too. From, from Home Alone. And so I kind of thought back about Home Alone because I think in this show, I mean, just like White Rose doesn't believe in coincidence, there are really no coincidences in Mr. Robot. But if you look back at Home Alone, which really, I mean, I'm going to say that's a masterpiece for a kid's movie. Oh, I love it. Actually, the Toronto Symphony Orchestra is performing the music from it this year, which is pretty cool. But if you think about it, the way that movie starts, Joe Pesci social engineers his way into the house by posing as a cop. Hey, you're right. That surely was uh, ahead of its time then, huh? or that movie. It really was. And, of course, um, Kevin McAllister character, because remember at the beginning, this is one of my favorite lines because I still remember it, you know, 25 years later or whatever. But he says, when I grow up and get married, I'm living alone. <laughs> wow, that's perfect. And he wishes for his whole family to disappear, right? So... There, just like Mr. Robot, it's a bit of a be careful of the world that you dream about, the future that you dream of. Yeah, I can really clearly see that parallel now. The other couple of things that I want to point out, um, this is also a Home Alone is a story about assumptions. Because remember, they assume the old man who lives next door is like a murderer and he's the villain. And then, of course, he turns out to be the person that saves him at the end. Plot twist. Plot twist, just like in this show where I think it's very fluid who's a hero and who's a villain. And the last thing I'll say, remember Kevin's campaign against the robbers? Mm -hmm. I mean, he's basically a gorilla, right? He takes whatever he has. He doesn't have the power in that situation. And he fights back. And I think that's really what Darlene and Elliot tried to do through 5-9, right? Take the tools available to them at the time and push back against people who had more power, more authority, more credibility in the world than they did. So that's my master's thesis in um, uh, cultural studies for you. I think that you've got something there, because when I was reading um, the subreddit earlier, I noticed that they've been referencing Home Alone as early as the first season. So I guess that it's something that the writers have always had in their minds. I guess you were able to come up with a lot of um, 
points about Home Alone there because of our tradition of watching it around Christmas time. We do. We do indeed. The snowman, they, they say that the snowman had no arms and just looked like it had a weird smile on its face. And then also reminded me of the Pikachu jack-o'-lantern you made that looked like a cat. It's almost Halloween. We're, maybe we could do better this year <laughs> with, a, with a new Pikachu jack-o'-lantern. Yeah, so he wants to take a picture of this masterpiece snowman and he steals the camera that belongs to his father. And we find out that afterward, this leads to uh, his accident. So Krista, to this point, had not been aware of his defenestration. I love that you were able to find the appropriate time to use that word. I've been waiting 35 years to appropriately use the word defenestration in a conversation. So thank you, everyone, for allowing that. I'm still waiting for a chance to use Kafkaesque, so hopefully we'll hit that bell sometime soon. Yeah, yeah, we'll make that work. So he discloses to her, I guess for the first time, that his father had pushed him out of the window, and he spends the rest of that day in the hospital, and he never gets the photo of the snowman. Do you think this is because he stole the camera or that there's some like relation there? I don't think so. I think the two are not linked because they were going to get the camera. Krista says, what did what happened when you went back outside? And they just never made it that far. So I don't think it's a precipitating incident. I think it's it's interesting, though. It's such a joyful memory and such a joyful day. The other half of that day is completely opposite. So this next scene it's an episode of Let's Be Frank with Frank Cody. So he's a 5'9 truther journalist. And he's got a very special guest that we didn't see in the first episode of the season. Joanna Wellick is back. So we learn from her that the murder of Sharon Knowles has been successfully pinned on Scott Knowles. Yeah, we find that out in the uh, Sharon on the bottom of the screen. That's what that's called after you use the word defenestrate. <laughs> We're getting, our vocabulary is really getting great here. I hope that I pronounced it right. didn't make an ass out of myself. Well, I'm sure a listener will correct us. <laughs> if you look closely, uh, Joanna Wellick is wearing the cubic zirconia earrings. I noted that. I think that she's kind of trying to get Tyrell's attention with this broadcast. Exactly, because he's going to need to find out through some public means that that hurdle at least is out of the way for him so that he could return to his family. She also says she's withdrawn her petition for divorce. Basically, she's tried to set her universe back the way it was before all of this happened. So since rewatching this episode, my opinion has changed a little bit. But because of this scene and a couple others in the rest of the episode, I remember the first thing I texted you when this episode ended was that I hated it. And I think that the problem I have with this, um, this scene where Joanna's on TV, I think that they very much do... They do too much telling and not enough showing because the very last scene that we saw Joanna in last season, if I recall, was her kind of explaining to Derek that he had to lie to the police to exonerate Tyrell and pin it on Scott instead. And then in the very next scene, we find out that um, like she did all of that. Apparently, it was successful, but we didn't really get to see any of it. And I think that it would have been nice to see Joanna contribute more in this season, and I could have seen that storyline taking like three or four episodes to play out. They do really accelerate the pace because really we get a recap of all of that in before the cold open, but it's not developed. And I, I think that's a missed opportunity in a way. Maybe it's a problem that I always skip those intros. Oh, well, I don't know if it is. I mean, if you haven't seen the show before, perhaps, but, but I mean, they do set the stage for what's going to come in the episode a little bit. So they do kind of recap that storyline very quickly. So the other thing I feel about this storyline, it seems like... Um, like you said, the storyline is kind of ramping up, but the difference, um, the different branches of the storyline seem to be accelerating at different paces because Tyrell has been exonerated for the murder of Sharon, but 
now I'm thinking like, who cares about a rich white guy killing someone now that the economy is broken? Like money is on the line now, not human life. Nobody cares about that anymore. So Tyrell is like the most wanted person in the world. And I don't think that um, this plan of Joanna is actually going to have very much of an effect. Well, it makes me wonder how much the FBI has actually put out there that Tyrell is the most wanted man in the world and that he's really the one they're looking for. Because I thought, okay, if he's wanted for this hack, then what does she think it's going to achieve? Like, he can't come home. Exactly. It's not business as usual. And I wonder, it, maybe, you know, that's actually a really good point. I kind of remember thinking that it was common knowledge that Tyrell was to blame for this, but now that I'm trying to think about it, I could be wrong about that. So maybe from Joanna's perspective, what's going on is that Tyrell is in hiding so that he's not going to go to prison for this murder. I do know, I think there, in an earlier Obama press conference, he does use the name Tyrell Wellick and say they're looking for him. Oh, yeah, I know I remember. But I don't know how much that's really been brought to the forefront. In I mean, several months have obviously passed since season two is supposed to have occurred. And being wanted by the FBI isn't that much of a hurdle. I mean, you could still become president or something. Oh, too real. Too real. So Sutherland, of course, is there to escort Joanna home. And on the radio, we hear an E-Corp commercial. And so I made a mistake last episode that I want to correct. Because when they uh, walk into the hacker space, I thought it said 1984 painted on the wall. But actually, and this might support some of the time travel theories, the commercial is from E-Corp. And they say, since 1884, we've had America's back. So I think we're going to have to do a bit of thinking about what the significance of that might be. So I just want to interject for a moment. Uh, I looked up the significance of 1884, uh, and that was the year that the eight-hour workday was introduced uh, in America and then spun off what then became May Day, the the big pro-labor holiday. Man, that's great. Thank you, local anarchist guys. But I think that that's the connection to the hacker space. So we hear the E-Corp commercial, and then it's cut off, and we cut away to what I think is the sixth F Society video. Yeah, and Darlene, Dom, and Santiago are watching it from an FBI safe house. They're asking Darlene about it, but she doesn't really know what's going on. Well, so the video is very aggressive and I think a bit different in tone from some of the previous videos because they say, you know, E-Corp survived their last blow but they are going to deliver a message so loud their eardrums will explode. Oh, and you know how we were talking about how there was a lot of telling and not a lot of showing? I guess um, it's worth mentioning here that all these people are in a room together because, like you had guessed correctly in the previous episode, um, Darlene is working with the FBI. Well, and I was kind of half right and half wrong on that because at that point I thought Darlene had not been flipped, but she's got an immunity deal. My perspective is that she hasn't been completely flipped because I think that she's still trying to protect Elliot above all else. Well, because Santiago is kind of giving Dom shit, thinking this is useless because in six weeks that she has been a confidential human source, an informant for them, she's actually given them zero information. It explains why she was asking so many pointed questions at the barbecue, though. Because she's tasked with getting intelligence on Tyrell. That's actually what they're looking for. The FBI begins to doubt her utility a bit when she denies that there is any connection between Elliot and Tyrell. And then Dom 
plays the phone call that Elliot placed from the red phone, remember when we still believed he lived with yeah. his mother, to Tyrell. Interestingly, about if you listen carefully to that phone call, though, so the phone call originates from the jail. I thought it originated from the... I thought it was an incoming call. It's a call from the correctional facility. Uh-oh. But when Elliot gets on the line, he says, who is this? So perhaps Mr. Robot initiated that call. Confusing. He doesn't seem to know what's going on. Okay, I don't know what's going on either. <laughs> so Darlene, um, she doesn't know who uploaded this video. She alleges that it's not anybody from F Society that she knows, and she tries to pin the blame on Dark Army. But Dom says that this video was uploaded from the same Vimeo account as the last one. And I remembered that the person who actually uploaded the video last time, who actually has access to the Vimeo accounts, was Trenton. So I wonder if Trenton and Mobile are out there somewhere. Oh my god, I'm so I'm dying to know what happened to those two. I have a bit of a, a hint here that might even reach into spoiler territory. But if you look very closely, the person with this mask on has a beard. So I think that that hints quite strongly that it's Mobley. Ooh, interesting. So we cut away from this scene and back to Joanna and Sutherland in the car. Yeah, I remember this scene very strongly. This scene is very unforgettable uh, for a lot of reasons. So I guess to take it from the start, um, we find out that even earlier in the episode, uh, Sutherland and Joanna are being followed by another car. And now it turns out that it's Derek, the person who Joanna had a brief relationship with. And it seems like that was just for the purpose of manipulating him into lying to the police. And now he's not very happy about it. Does he seem drunk to you when he gets out of the car? I thought he seemed really drunk too. Sutherland stops the car and says nothing to Joanna, but I have to make a stop and gets out to confront Derek. This was like a big shock to me because I don't think that it would be a very good idea for a bodyguard to get out of a car. And like, I I think that he probably has a pretty strong suspicion about who it is. Like, who are Joanna's enemies right now? And why would you put yourself in such a vulnerable position like that? I think he thinks he's got it under control, right? Because remember, he is physically bigger and stronger. And I mean... He chokes Derek, and I think that he lets him live, but I think his intention there is to give a really clear reminder of their power and to hopefully, you know, dispatch him for good. He says there's no future where they ever see each other again. Yeah, I think that so far Sutherland has been positioned as somebody who's very powerful, very imposing. And conversely, Derek is kind of a wimp. I think that he's kind of intended to be portrayed as somebody who's kind of weak. And Joanna's just playing him like a pawn. And now um, when Sutherland gets back in the car, we find out that, that, is, that he doesn't really appreciate that. This is a really scary scene. So Derek's got a gun. Yeah, it's, it's a very, very abrupt transition where he kind of walks up beside the car and it's not really revealed that he's armed yet until he lifts up his arm, fires, the glass breaks, the baby starts crying. And Sutherland looks like he's been hit in the shoulder or chest or something. Sutherland gets shot. Then Joanna moves to grab his gun. In the process of that, Derek shoots and kills her instantly. Yeah. The scene plays out in a very similar way to Kareem's death, which I guess is an intended parallel. Even like uh, the palette and the color scheme of the shots are very similar. But um, kind of like how Sutherland described Kareem's death, he was shot once in the chest and then once in the head. And that's kind of the same thing that happened here. Talking more about like Joanna's storyline, I think that this really is the absolute perfect way for it to culminate because she kind of um, plays somebody like a pawn and then they turned out to be a little more powerful than she had anticipated. But like I was saying earlier, I think that they kind of accelerated some storylines faster than others and it made me feel like this one ended very abruptly and I would have liked to see Joanna more in this season. 
The one thing I do want to point out here is, so in situations of domestic violence, the most dangerous time for a woman is actually right after she leaves the relationship. That's when most women are uh, murdered if they're killed by their former partners. So message from the Mr. Rewatch team, if you yourself are in a, a relationship where you fear for your safety or you know someone who is, it's important to keep lines of communication open, make that person feel like they're not isolated and try to seek support because, you know, I, I think what's interesting here is Joanna Wellick is, she appears almost invincible. She has a lot of wealth and, you know, she has a bodyguard for God's sake and this still happens to her. So that's I think fair. that's a really terrifying way for her storyline to end. But unfortunately, not an uncommon way that that storyline does end in our society. And this goes back to why I think this is the toxic masculinity episode of Mr. Robot. Yeah, that seems to be a theme of this episode. We cut straight to an autopsy scene, which I guess is supposed to show you that, yeah, she's dead. They're not going to try and pull any uh, camera tricks on you or anything like that. I think she was actually shot in the same place as Kareem, so that must be an intended parallel. So we're going to pour one out for our evil queen. Sutherland survived. Derek died. I guess that's also worth summarizing, but I doubt that their characters are really going to come out that much again. Well, it's interesting because they, the FBI agents who are in the room while the autopsy is happening point out that the driver is going to live, so I think they're hopeful they're going to be able to get some intelligence from him once he's conscious again. What intelligence does he have at this point? Like, I feel like that storyline is done for. <laughs> well, he knows an awful lot about Tyrell and the Wellicks, don't you think? Like, he's... Yeah, maybe. But I feel like Tyrell is just, like, out in his own world by now. I guess we'll find out how it plays out. I think we likely will. Um, one pretty sinister thing about this, Dom asks about contacting the next of kin. And they're actually going to secret the baby away and into foster care so that they don't have to publicize this event. Because apparently the cops caught this before the media could get a hold of it before anyone else. So they're going to keep her death quiet, move the baby away, and continue their pursuit of Tyrell, which is pretty cold, Santiago. Absolutely. Santiago is like a major asshole, if you ask me. Um, I guess, though, that's if Tyrell was to find out about this, maybe that would... Um, like cause him to take some action that they're afraid of. What's interesting is I thought it might be a way for them to solicit his appearance. Hey, you're right. But they're not playing it that way. I'm not an FBI agent. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> so Dom and Santiago are actually just having like a normal business conversation in the same room where they are cutting Joanna's skull open. I heard on the subreddit also that they did that in a way that's like technically scientifically accurate. If you're ever wondering what an autopsy looks like. Oh my God. I'm glad I won't be around for my own. Looks pretty brutal. Dom still thinks this video is fake. And she still believes in Darlene. She doesn't think she has an incentive to lie. She doesn't think she's a flight risk. Santiago's of the opposite opinion, thinks that she is a total waste of their time. Yeah, I guess this kind of clues into what you were talking about in previous episodes. It didn't really click for me until close to now. But it seems like um, Dom and Darlene do kind of have a, a trusting relationship with each other to some extent. Well, and I think Darlene is often, we've talked about this before, I think underestimated. Like, she's Elliot's little sister. She's not the leader. And I think Santiago plays into that, right? Where he sees her as just, like, some peripheral person in this story where Dom sees her as more central, more effective, more powerful. I guess they agree to disagree on, on that particular point. I've been trying to think here about whether Elliot knows what's going on and is trying to push her away for her own safety, but in a way that wouldn't compromise her if she were wearing a wire, or if he's just 
being super egocentric and a really shitty brother. Yeah, I, I thought he was just being an asshole, to be honest. But I wouldn't put it past him to have that level of intuition. I can't tell if he's operating at that higher level or not, honestly. Darlene pushes back a little bit on this because she thinks he is just being selfish because in their childhood, they both suffered. All of the trauma was not his alone. And so I think she feels like he often ignores her experience of that. It's definitely very sad to see them fight. I remember seeing like the, the scene where they watch The Careful Massacre of the Burgressy together and thinking that was really nice. And this is basically the opposite. Let's never fight like this. Yeah. She says something that could be super triggering when she says, I wish dad were here right now. And yeah, I, that is a little triggering. Yeah, I'll never say that to you. <laughs> I wonder if she is trying to elicit Mr. Robot's presence. Oh, maybe. Maybe, yeah. Well, she just, like, he just revealed that she was one of the triggers. Well, and remember, I mean, she's just as good a social engineer as him. So I don't know if that's part of her plan to try to get this intelligence, is to try to get Mr. Robot on scene to help her in that process. So in this scene, I can't tell if either of them are being genuine or if both of them are playing their own games. I feel that way about every character, every scene in the season, to be honest. Darlene uh, is planning to leave town. Sorry, Dom. Sorry, Dom. She says that this whole thing was never really about even their bigger mission, although I think she did believe in that very strongly, but it really was to reestablish her relationship with Elliot. And that this is so sad. It is. Um, they talk about the snowman a bit here and bond over that, I guess. And he uses that as kind of an olive branch, I think, because he asks her to stay at his place that night because, again, he's experiencing this overwhelming, devastating loneliness, and she agrees. So we noted in the last episode that some characters were mysteriously absent, namely Joanna and Price. And in this episode, we kind of get to see a bit more of their storyline. Price seems to be at G20, uh, delivering a very powerful speech about eCoin. There seems to be a vote about um, about 19, I think, people are already on board with using eCoin as a new world currency. But China is still backing Bitcoin. So Price's new private cryptocurrency has now replaced all of these independent nations' self-generated currency and is the world standard. And that is terrifying. It's terrifying because of how quickly and easily something like that could happen, to be honest. China's the holdout here because they're on Bitcoin. Yeah. Uh, Price declares this as an outright currency war. And we see that um, White Rose, as Minister Zhang, is in the audience, and he kind of picks up on that. I like watching Zhang's face this whole scene. So this is really a shot across the bow from Price, I think, trying to tell Zhang to get in line. We do get a scene between Price and Zhang, and I think this is my favorite scene in this episode. It is pretty BD. It's fantastic. How does Zhang set the stage for this meeting? My favorite quote from this scene, I think, is when White Rose says that the only reason... Actually, I guess this is Zhang, not White Rose. When he says that um, the only reason he's agreed to this meeting is that it's on the way out of the building. Like, they're not even making any time for him. This is so confrontational. because I think it's the most confrontational these two have ever been with each other. Yeah, because previously they've kind of had, like, a frenemy type deal going on where they obviously have... Um, different interests, but they're able to kind of get along on the overt level, at least. Price is telling him to call off his dogs. In 11 days, they'll have the Congo deal, but 
He wants China to sign the accord and move to his currency. So I think you were right that the Congo is about to become a lot more significant in the story. And I'm glad to see that come to fruition because we've been waiting a long time to see what's actually going to materialize there. So I guess now we're going to see it in all of its terrifying, probably, glory. So White Rose does not really agree to go along with Price's plan because... Actually, this is, it, it just reminded me now, but do you remember when um, Jack was talking to Price about uh, Ecoin and um, Jack said, like, you've been planning this from the beginning, haven't you, Price? And Price just says, oh, no, I don't give a shit about you. I think that White Rose, or Zhang, I keep mixing them up now, sorry. He says something kind of similar here where he just says, I don't give a fuck about your projects. And Price, I think, is like, he, he's terrified of this person. That's the impression I get. And I think that's interesting because remember, Price is a person who thinks there are two or three rooms in the world where he's not the most powerful man. And so Zhang, obviously a threat to his power. And just all out where Zhang says, your success will always follow mine. I was actually going to reference that earlier moment where he said that um, there are only a few people who he thinks are more powerful than him. Because I think he was thinking of waiters at that moment. Like I think that this is the person who he's been afraid of all along. And it's when uh, Minister Zhang mentions Angela that he really starts to get terrified. I know. This seems, they're getting real. They're getting real in here. Price threatens the vote because Price has engineered this vote. Because I think frenemy is the perfect word for these two. Where I think they hate each other, but I think they're willing to use each other when it's strategically advantageous. Zhang says he would have liked to put a bullet into each of the eyes of Price's pet employee. But... I think really clearly lets him know that Angela's on White Rose's side now. They specifically use the term hypnotizing, and I wonder if, like, maybe they did literally hypnotize her in that weird red room. My favorite line in this scene is when Zhang says about letting Angela live, don't mistake my generosity for generosity. I think that they're proving to be the most powerful actor in the series so far. Well, think about it. I mean, they've co-opted... F Society, they have, they are the holdout at the G20. They're going to get the Congo annexed, a sovereign nation for their own purposes. I mean, Zhang is playing to win here, and I kind of love it, but maybe I just hate Price. Yeah, it's nice to kind of see him get his comeuppance in that way. Like Darlene had said, she's planning to leave, and it seems like um, Elliot has woken up in the night and caught her on the way out. He's caught her doing something to his computer, he thinks, which we can't really observe. Yeah, I mean, maybe somebody else got a better look at it than me, but I didn't see anything going on there. Um, He seems to be intensely suspicious of her in a way that we haven't really seen so far. I wonder if Dom trusts her because Darlene is such a shitty liar. Because she does not do a good job at trying to talk her way out of this situation. She says that she's going to take a bus. Transit's been on strike for months. There's no way to get out. Yeah, you'd think, um, like you had said earlier, that she's a very good social engineer. But she kind of drops the ball here in a few ways. And now I was trying to decide, do you think this is Mr. Robot acting in the next scene, even though we see them, or in this scene rather, even though we see them visually present as Elliot? Yeah, I think that they, they kind of confirm it because there is a shot later on where it actually does have Mr. Robot in his place. And I think that this is where Mr. Robot is starting to really cross some boundaries because he's actually becoming physically violent with Darlene when he doesn't answer the questions in the way that he wants. And this, of course, is terrifying for Darlene and for the viewer, right? Because Elliot, we see him as Elliot, physically grabs her, 
she's asking him to stop. He's getting more physically aggressive with her. It's really scary and shitty. It sounds awful to say, but the Darlene scenes where she's like upset, like uh, her panic attack scene in the previous episode and this one here, she just does a really, really good job at them, I think. I know. I'm a big Carly Chaikin fan. I really like her in this. I know Darlene's a bit compromised right now, but I still do love this character. Oh, yeah. I'm, I, I'm, I make some affordances for her because she's so cool. I do hope that we'll get to see some kind of littlest hobo scenes from her on the road. The next scene takes place back in Krista's office. Her new cool-looking home office. Elliot has asked her if she can speak directly to Mr. Robot. She thinks this is a good mode of treatment for him, but I think she is very, very underprepared for what is about to happen. I think so too, but I also think that she kind of goes on to demonstrate how competent she is in the scene. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here. No, I think so, because I think through this entire scene, she's very poised, and she modulates her own emotions well, because this, I think, would be very unnerving. Right. So she's able to almost hypnotize Elliot, as we were talking about hypnosis earlier, and bring out Mr. Robot. So this is the first time that these two characters have had any interactions. And I think that it's um, some really great dialogue between Krista and Mr. Robot here. This is another great scene, actually. Mr. Robot really resents her intrusion. He believes that she is the one who's broken them apart, and he talks a lot about when they were whole. And so he perceives her as a threat, and I think that's how he treats her. Yeah, he's kind of aggressive, and he kind of like hits on her in some very uncomfortable ways. I guess that's something that we come to expect from this guy now, though. So in my notes, I just have loads of casual sexism. So um, there's that. He's being very threatening at the end. He's physically threatening, getting right up in her personal space. And, you know, I think this is either a really masterful piece of acting or where we get to see Christian Slater's real personality come out. <laughs> Maybe he's like a method actor and just took, it out on, took on that personality. I wanted to make sure that I was uh, right in saying that. So if you just Google Christian Slater allegations, what comes up is a viral Nova article uh, that's called 25 Celebrities You Forget Committed Horrible Crimes. Yeah, we were kind of worried about like a libel lawsuit or something here, but then we Googled it and we're like, ah, no, we're, we're covered. Yeah, we're not the first. We're not the first. I do think this is a very powerful scene, though. There's actually a piece I want to fact check here. Could I have a sec to fact check that? So uh, I looked on the Googs because I wanted to be sure about this. I've never heard anybody say that before. The Googs? No. <laughs> My buddy, the Googs. Okay, what's, what, what did you find on the Googs? What I found is, so there's a point where Mr. Robot, um, he says a quote to Krista. A civilization which leaves so large a number of its participants unsatisfied and drives them into revolt neither has nor deserves the prospect of a lasting existence. She recognizes this immediately as Freud. That's what I was fact-checking. I just wanted to be sure Mr. <laughs> Robot was uh, you know, on his game. You didn't just trust Krista? I did trust her, but I did not trust him. I didn't know that Freud was so woke. Like He seems pretty, pretty left here. Pretty, pretty unwoke most, <laughs> of the, most of the time. Wasn't he also on a lot of coke? I think in that day, everyone was. It was like, a, like an herbal tonic. Uh, Mr. Robot's cool with that. He thinks she's hot and smart. Way to objectify her in that backhanded compliment, Mr. Robot. 
I think it's really admirable that she's able to completely maintain her composure when he's being so antagonistic. One of the things he says a couple of times here is that they're compromised now. And that raises a lot of questions for me, and for Elliot, actually, about who is compromised, so which of these alter egos is, who did it, to what end. Yeah, all very confusing stuff. Confusing for Elliot, too, because when we cut back to the physical representation of Elliot, he says, like, hey, Krista, what are we going to get going with, with this sesh here? So as we were saying, Ecoin is now basically the world currency to the extent that there are some prostitutes on the street who are using it. <laughs> I did sign up for the Ecoin application uh -huh. that the show has created. Now, this is not, unfortunately available for Canadian viewers. So I did tell them a little lie that I actually lived in America, which I do not. I always use 90210 as my fake zip code when I need to get into American sites. You know what? They just let you check a box. Wow. Yeah. But if you do sign up for it and you are, uh, you do have an American address, they actually are giving away a bunch of free stuff. So the last eCoin perk that was available was an Amazon Echo Dot. Man, you know, by the way, if there are any listeners out there who may be cannot get in on these official giveaways. We've got a few of those on our Twitter page, Mr. Underscore Rewatch. That's right. So if you're not already following us on Twitter, we've given away a couple of great things, and we've got more to come, especially as we get closer to the holidays. So do follow us on Twitter, and we've got a Facebook page now as well. Anyway, so we do see that this cryptocurrency, everyone is accepting it. Elliot's on his walk home. And what he's wondering to himself is why after that session does he suddenly feel so alive? And I wonder if it's because Mr. Robot is back, if that's why, if Mr. Robot is driving Elliot Collective back to their important work, because that's what Mr. Robot keeps talking about in the session. I wonder if some of those are features that do make him feel alive and less like the corporate robot that he feels like day to day. I could definitely see that being it. When he gets home, he finds out that someone's waiting for him. And, you know, it seems like that's just how people in the show meet each other. Yeah, they just lurk outside apartments or break into apartments or meet up on the subway like you do, you know? Now, this is a character I never thought I'd see in the show again. It's Michael Hansen, and I, I didn't think I'd see him either. He is waiting outside Elliot's house with an old friend. It's Flipper. Little Flips. We were, we were just talking about how we were missing Flipper in the last episode. Good foreshadowing. Very, very clever on your part, I thought. Now, I had all kinds of questions. Why is this happening? Because uh, like White Rose, we don't believe in coincidences on this show. I have a theory that might be a bit far-fetched, but of course, there's a lot of references to Back to the Future in this show. And in Back to the Future, if you think about the first time we see Marty McFly go to look for Doc Brown, well, first he walks into a room full of ticking clocks... And he realizes he's not there because the automatic dog feeder that's set up is like overflowing with this like disgusting sludgy canned food. And he's looking for the dog Einstein. And later when Einstein returns to him, that's when he's actually presented with the DeLorean, the time travel machine. So it makes me wonder if we really are going down the road of time travel here. It definitely seems like a big parallel. And I'm also missing out on all of these not having seen those movies before. In fact, now that you mention it, I have a friend who has a dog named Einstein, and I bet that they referenced that, and I just never picked it up until now. So I'm missing out on all kinds of cultural references. The other thing you're really missing is the comedian Hari Kondabolu has a great Back to the Future joke on both of his comedy albums, and I cannot recommend those enough to you. 
the person who has the dog named Einstein is the illustrator who made the picture of your cats in space. No way. Elliot goes inside to his apartment, gets Lil Flips some water. Apparently Flipper is sick, by the way. Uh, Michael Hansen believes that he's dying, and that's the pretext he uses to just shove him back to Elliot. Actually, it's her. Sorry, Flipper. Um, they use um, her as the pronoun for Flipper. That's also the same lie that he told Krista to get them to meet him. I wonder if that's just something that he's made up. <laughs> yeah, that guy's really manipulative. Elliot goes to his computer. Um, I think there was some criticism that he's running Kali Linux. He's always been running Kali Linux, like forever and always. And I can go into that a bit, actually, because um, way back in the pilot, I made a joke about how KDE and GNOME aren't really like the desktop environments you consider advanced hackers to use. And Kali is like, it's sometimes considered to be like, it, it's very accessible. It has like a bunch of tools to make it really easy to use like uh, password cracking tools, things like that. And it comes preloaded with all of those. But because of that, it's very easy for like noobs and script kitties as they're called to use it. So when I made that joke at the expense of no men's KDE users, I was referring to the fact that like really advanced hackers tend to like not even use what's called a desktop environment. They just run like a window manager and have more control over their system. People think that somebody as skilled as Elliot would probably use something more advanced. I think the inference in this scene is that Darlene did in fact do something when she was fidgeting around behind his computer and whatever it is uh, seems to have worked. We do cut away to a scene of her in what I guess is a safe house. And she is leaving under cover of night. She's headed out the door. Darlene? I didn't notice that. <laughs> That's a pretty important detail. We do get one more scene with Zhang in this episode. And he is like such a powerhouse badass in this. They really scale it up in this season. Well, and he's really ratcheting up his villain cred. Like He's like the lead hun in Mulan at this point. I think that the line delivery is always great. Excellent line delivery. So is Zheng talking to their aide? Stage two apparently is still in play, and it's going to happen the day of the UN vote, and it's going to happen whether they are successful or whether they fail. So two important revelations there, one of which is that stage two was conditional on this UN vote, and now it's not. So previously we didn't really know that these were connected at all. Also a few clarifications about the importance of the Congo here. So... This is my bad. Earlier in the series, Zhang references the Colton mine. I thought that was the name of a specific mine. Apparently, that is a specific mineral. Okay. And that's prevalent in Congo. There are a few other important minerals that are used in technology products, like, ooh, tantalum. That sounds exciting. Sounds tantalizing. Uh, also, uh, significant deposits of that in Congo. So to me, this seems like it's really focusing down, again, tying it to reality. These are conflict minerals, so this is often a war zone. Um, a lot of unethical treatment of people who are involved in mining these minerals. Um, it's not without a uh, certain political charge. And Zhang intends to have all of it. Yeah, it seems like they're talking about moving sledge factory there. And I really wonder what that's going to be for. Yeah, they do talk about moving the operation to the Luau mine. So... That's the name of an actual mine, right? I do believe, although I, you know, I could stand to be corrected, as I, I've just corrected myself even in this episode. Um, so really interesting. Um, the aide asks, if they're successful, why would they carry out stage two? Which, again, remember, involves potentially killing people. And they suggest that Price just needs a, a bit of a wrist slap. Maybe they had overstepped our bounds earlier. 
And I think Zhang is probably the only person at this point who can deliver a hand slap to him. Last scene of the episode, we have Dom and Santiago watching a surveillance feed from the FBI safe house. And then it looks like Darlene had just left. I'm pretty mad that when Dom arrives there, she's got the lollipop back. Wait, I think that I'm like clearly wrong about it being the safe house that Darlene just left. No, they're upstairs in the safe house. Oh, so does that mean Elliot just came into the place that they're in right now? Yeah. Holy shit, that makes this much more intense than I had interpreted. Yeah, Dom is coming back to, it's not Santiago who's there, she's joined by another co-worker. When she walks up to the house, though, she notices a Comet Electric van on the street. After you pointed out that I got the character wrong, too, I'm really feeling like I dropped the ball in this scene. So what are we saying about the, the uh, van? It's not hard to drop the ball in this show. I feel like <laughs> there's a lot of moving pieces here. Um, this, this might be a wrong theory of mine. Uh, there's a Comet Electric van on the street. And remember, they had been on strike um, during all the power disruptions and stuff. So I don't know if that's a real Comet Electric van. And they're saying, hey, hey we're back to work. The power's back on. Or if it's like a surveillance van or somebody playing the role of Comet Electric to hang out in the neighborhood across the street from the FBI safe house. So I feel suspicious. It's good to be suspicious. I agree. Uh, Dom brought food for her coworker. I feel like she's, you know, like those people when you walk into their house and I was like, sit down, I'll fix you a plate. She really takes care of you. I think so. I do still think, I feel like her character is a little flat in this episode. Like we don't get as much of her like insight and warmth. And I'm not as interested in her right now. No, and I think that the lollipop is kind of a step backwards, too. Yeah, I hope that that will uh, shape up. Um, she's irritated at places that are only taking e-coin. Apparently, the dollar at this point is worth, like, nothing at all. Yeah, it's kind of frightening how quickly things can change. One thing I want to share. So, her colleague is really excited to share some audio from Elliot's apartment with her. And they hold up their phone to play it. And it's the Bare Naked Ladies one week. That song always gets stuck in my head whenever I hear it. Everybody's head. But apparently that's something Sam Esmail used to do in the writer's room to the other writers. He used to rickroll them with that song and do that over and over. I read this in Vanity Fair in an interview with one of the writers. Um, so they decided finally they would build their inside joke into the show. That's pretty fantastic. So what do they learn when they're trying to track this encrypted email that they've, I, I guess, discovered from Elliot's account? Yeah, the, they've been monitoring Elliot for a while now, it seems, and there was an outgoing email to a file that was very conspicuously called plans.rar, so they decided to click on that, and they aren't able to find anything interesting there, but um, it was a phishing link in a way, or almost like a honeypot that Elliot had provided knowing that he was being surveilled, so when they clicked that link, he was able to compromise their system and find out their location. This is kind of... Um, like, a, a, a little sci-fi in that it's not particularly realistic. It's technically possible, though, but only really in theory. I like that their light bulb moment happens in, like, real time with something that is occurring in the basement of the house <laughs> they're sitting in. Yeah, man, that's crazy. It's like the killer was at 127.0.0.1 the whole time. The call was coming from inside the house. That's what I just said. Yeah, I'm just affirming. <laughs> I'm affirming you. I hear you and I validate your reference and uh, you as a person. So, oh, thanks. <laughs> so Elliot is downstairs. They're watching him on the monitors and that's the end of the episode. Well, thank you for listening to Mr. Rewatch. This episode was recorded in downtown Hamilton. And considering what we'd said earlier, it would be great if you'd consider donating to a local women's shelter or feminist organization. I'm Devlin. And I'm Erin. Bonsoir. <laughs>